Our goal with the thwart is to bring those questions, those issues to the forefront and try to get people to interact with what it means to try and have beauty mm-hmm. and culture in the public sphere, how to reintegrate so much of the traditional wisdom that we, we've lost and how we can do those things while helping people and looking towards the future with technological advancement. Welcome to the first episode of the Conservative Curious Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Dang. In this episode, my co-host Ani Pai and I talk to Bradley Davis, editor-in-chief of the newly launched Abort magazine. I'm really excited for you to meet Bradley and learn more about his fascinating journey, which, believe it or not, started with a secular background at the most liberal college in America. He embarked on a quest to explore all things classical and beautiful and dove into the Catholic faith in Morocco of all places. Bradley is not only reviving the wisdom found in ancient philosophy, but possibly creating a new dialogue in modern conservatism. You know, it's funny. Uh, there's like this huge, huge resurgence in, like you write on your website, right? Original publications with, they often coincide with this birth and nascency of new thought. But like at the same time, you know, we have with the American mind, we have Claremont Review books, although I guess that's a bit adjacent. We have Palladium. Why is now the best time for Earthworth than, you know, five years ago or I mean, uh, versus five years ago, uh, none of us were quite prepared for mm. that. Although I, Athwart did formally begin five or six years ago. Uh, Nicholas Whitaker and I uh, started it while we were at the end of high school, beginning of college as a way to, to write about politics. But now the endeavor is much more serious. Now seems like a great time for a lot of reasons. Obviously, the technical barriers uh, have never been lower for trying to start a new publication. And, you know, in your last talk, you guys pushed back against this a little bit about how much change you think is going to come at the end of of this coronavirus crisis and and the quarantines and such Mm -hmm. coming out. I I think there is a lot of potential at the moment for for significant change in political, social and cultural life. And that that was the case prior to this starting and even more so now. So the way politics and and our culture have become sort of stagnant and confused. It seems like the the perfect time for I Jessica, I think you mocked the word a little bit um in your last last salon, but for a realignment of sorts. Uh and so we we are hopeful towards that. I first saw the name of the magazine, first thing that comes to mind of course is Buckley. And it seems like he is an inspiration for you guys, obviously. I was just wondering, is it because you feel like his movement and what he's created has waned and now we need a resurgence or a reform or something different? National Review, I I grew up reading and always really loved. I do think it's, well, it's still a fantastic publication with great writers and editors its cultural influence has waned a bit. I really respected um, Buckley. His fusionism enabled a a path forward for uh, the Republican Party and conservatives. And I I would like to think uh, part of our effort with a thwart is trying to build a a new fusionist politics, a a new uh, coming together uh, of 
various blocks into a coalition for the future. I'm curious how this relates. So you wrote this one piece about, you know, uh, ancient philosophy and future governance, where you're writing about, you know, what is good and uh, what is just. I'm curious, do you think that's more the question for Thor to answer going forward, kind of what Buckley wanted to do for conservatism? I think part of the movement that Buckley got started and that has been very dominant on the right has been almost to a fault too libertarian in my mindset. And part of that is what I personally would like to see some corrective to insofar as I think a lot of the goals of the early libertarian movement to an extent have been realized, but also the questions don't seem like they're as relevant now. Um, I don't think people feel that their government particularly cares about them as individuals or or their lives or, or communities. And so a big part of a new fusion uh, of thought moving forward is going to be really heavily dependent on common good and the health of communities and social structures. Uh, what we have written down as our mission, which I think is a very good representation of what we think, is that it is time for a new theory of political life that synthesizes traditional wisdom, technological advancement, appreciation for the aesthetically beautiful, and concern for the common good. I have a conservative response to each of those issues. Our goal with the thwart is to bring those questions, those issues, to the forefront and try to get people to interact with what it means to try and have beauty mm -hmm. and culture in the public sphere, how to reintegrate so much of the traditional wisdom that we, we've lost, and how we can do those things while helping people and looking towards the future with technological advancement. Conservatism, particularly in the American context, is a weird thing, but um, we can't stop the clock. You can't turn anything back. Technological advancement is going to be critical for trying to reimagine what society will look like in the next 20, 30, 50 years. Um, I was talking to Ani and I said, I don't know where I heard this, but I wonder if conservatism is just progressivism, but with speed bumps. So in the American context, it's so weird because we don't really have much of a thing to conserve. We don't have a really meaningful aristocracy. We don't have an ancient order of politics that we're trying to hold on to. We are a re revolutionary state with revolutionary ideals and trying to conserve revolution in a lot of ways just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. I, I think in the past several decades, Reagan being the sort of poster boy for this, a recommitment to the ideals of the revolution, the constitution and founding principles was in a sense trying to be conservative within that. But I don't think many people really care any longer about the constitution, declaration of independence, any of our founding documents or, or, or ideas the majority of the country doesn't feel like those have any relevance. So maybe in the American context, conservatism is trying to pump the brakes a little bit and, and not just speed through progress as much as possible. I think there might be some wisdom to that. See, that's interesting because 
you know, uh, having spent some uh, quite a lot of my time in Europe and stuff, they actually have this classical nature to look back to, right? I mean, Greece famously, but all of these uh, nations are very primordial, or at least a lot more so than America. But uh, you guys, you know, take that approach. And for you, of course, you're a big fan and researcher into Leo Strauss's work, right? Who uh, famously decries historicism and, uh, you know, would completely shatter the 1619 project as Mm -hmm. it stands today, like just decimate it, right? Completely. But the difference that you guys are doing is you you take that classical approach, but unlike Buckley, you almost feel like technology is also a very strong component. Why do you why did you think to focus on both of those things, right? The classical component and tech? I among the editors am certainly I, I think the most tech skeptical, but it's it's not something you can get around. It is a, a fact of life that technology is becoming more and more integrated in our education, in our political organization, in our economy. As much as I wish I could pick a day in history that the world could stay at forever, that is not going to happen. And so trying to figure out how to make the best use of technology and how to build up sort of a humane approach and reaction to growing technological advancement, that that's what I think is important. And Jessica, you, you mentioned some other publications uh, a little while ago that I, I really like American Mind. I really like Palladium. To an extent, Palladium somewhat inspired us in doing this. Uh, I, I have a good bit of respect for both uh, Jonah and Wolf. What a thwart is much more so than any of those other publications is I think humanities driven, not so mm. much interested in political questions or policy questions. First and foremost, what shapes our culture? How does that influence our society? And then the question of political response to me is third order. It is not what we want to be looking at first and I think might be somewhat misguided to look to politics first. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are, what you were studying, and how that all shaped your political views or your worldview today. That's all been pretty eclectic. I I grew up in California, uh, sort of on the outskirts of the Bay Area, Napa, raised in a liberal family and somewhat liberal. When I was younger, I, I moved up to Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and that was, is still, I think, the most liberal college in the country and the most secular one as well. And that was really interesting and made me change my mind on on a lot of different things. And I ended up founding uh, College Republicans there and becoming much more interested in conservative thinkers and thought. Uh, While at Lewis and Clark, I studied political science, mostly ancient political theory and uh, Middle East studies. And then I after graduation, I had done some stuff with, with think tanks, and then I received a, a Fulbright award to go teach uh, in Morocco, where I was a professor of English and business communication at the flagship engineering college in, in Meknes, uh, Morocco. One of the questions that has, for me, become very important in trying to understand the world is the tensions that exist 
And Leo Strauss, I, I think, is most helpful in, in examining this between reason and revelation, as he terms it, uh, between Athens and Jerusalem, and looking at classical political theory, living it in Morocco and interacting, trying to examine, observe, living under the government there, trying to understand those distinctions, and I, I think very serious tensions uh, between reason and revelation, faith and science, that has been what, what's most animated my, my thought. And also the, the overlaps and interactions between the Islamic and, and Western Christian world. So you, you had a secular background. Yeah. And then you went to this super liberal college. Is it because, you know, that quote that says, meeting the devil turned me to God? Or, you know, <laughs> is it because you were in this extreme environment that made you think there was something else? Uh, I think Plato inspired me that there is more in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe being in that environment helped me realize that the way a lot of people I was around viewed the world was, was quite mistaken. But I, I think political theory primed me. Uh, the first time I lived in Morocco, li- living within such a faithful community, uh, also influenced me. And so that this last time I, I, I was in Morocco, I, I joined the Catholic Church while, while I was there. I think you might be onto something that, to an extent, you have to define yourself as to how you are different from everything that surrounds you. And that, that influenced me, certainly, though, though not exclusively. I read something a while back where England actually has more people who graduate with a history degree than the entire United States, despite having like a fifth of the population. So you'd think it would be more common, right? In such a Jonathan Haid calling of the American mind time we live in where people are like, you know, surrounded with all this PC stuff and they can't talk about anything and the Overton window is closed. But now many people go back to like classical literature, or history or thought. It's just a funny anecdote. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I I don't think our culture values it very much here in the United States, which is un- unfortunate. And hopefully that that's something that can start to change. But yeah, I I don't think we value it nearly enough to to be interested in it for study. Why is that crumbling, or why is that happening? I'm not certain. Ani, do you do you have any insight between living in the UK and here? Why Why did it seem like people were more, more interested and engaged in history than they are here? I think, at least in the UK, and I think in all of Europe, people place a lot of respect and just general emphasis. I mean, definitely not in, I'd say, our generation, Gen Z, but in past generations, you know. I also think we underappreciate that the United States is a revolutionary country that tried to... Uh, unmoor itself from most things prior. I think it should be coming out this week. The The Phrenesis podcast, we, we have an episode where we're discussing uh, Walter Benjamin's thesis on the philosophy of history and trying to understand how sure. in the aftermath of, say, the French Revolution and other sort of revolutions, how history is rewritten and reconceptualized. And I think that it is governing or foundational ideology that history sort of begins with the United States and every, most things, if not everything prior, is ancillary. Yeah, I, I, I don't think American politics or business or, or anything about uh, life here really requires you to engage or interact with the past in a meaningful way. Life has a way of taking us on unexpected turns. 
I wanted to hear more about how Bradley found his Catholic faith in Morocco. Yeah, um, that that's one I'm still trying to figure out and understand myself. I It was something I was disposed towards. I, I thought I was going to join uh, the church after graduating college. Uh, and as coincidence, I ended up in Morocco. And so I figured, why not try it here? And so I showed up to the local Catholic church. The first Sunday I was there, went to mass and didn't stop going until uh, quarantine now. <laughs> um, but the Catholic community in Morocco is really amazing. There are churches throughout the country in every major city and outside of some of the big cities uh, as a vestige of the French colonization and, and Spanish as well. And since the French and Spanish have left, the churches still remain and now are primarily populated by sub-Saharan, West African, mostly young students uh, who go to Morocco for studies or or migrants trying to get into Europe and are, are temporarily in Morocco. And so the community is fascinating. The interactions uh, between Muslims and the, uh, the church are, are really interesting. And it, it's beautiful. I, since we're on the, this topic, I, I feel like I have to give them a, a shout out. Yesterday was the uh, feast day for the martyrs of Algeria, a, a group of uh, monks who yeah. were killed during the um, Algerian civil war. The survivors moved to Morocco following uh, and moved the monastery to Morocco. And so there's a very spiritually deep, but also I, I do think culturally deep connection between the church and North Africa. And, and it, it is fascinating. It was a wonderful community to be part of. So you take the strong interest in, I know you talked about your, you know, your time in Morocco, Meknes and all those things, but how would you square the, especially in the States, um, a lot of people don't really understand, I guess, not just Islam for one, but but I guess the the ways in which, you know, Islamic thought has moved and the fact that, you know, Islam has had uh, a tremendous impact on Western culture. But how would you uh, tell people, you know, I that understanding all this stuff is still very important today and that, you know, it's not just some antiquated idea to leave in the past. Man, there's a lot of ways to, to go at that. I, I mean, in general, the case needs to be made that classical H and medieval thought are, are important. And I think anyone who takes the time to read great works from history will see quite self-evidently that there are lots of insights that are very applicable to our contemporary lives. A lot of the problems that uh, exist now have existed in the past, and the ways they're they're dealt with are interesting. But looking towards the past really helps us in understanding our assumptions about the world and recognizing things we take for granted. And the liberal values we hold and the way we think about them, the way we think about economic life, about all sorts of things. By engaging with thinkers of the past, you really realize how novel some of those ideas are, right. in addition to to how ancient so, some of them are. But it, it's fascinating to see what, realize that people don't always think like you do. And people kind of think that the future just gets better, right? I think that's kind of what Buckley was trying to say with people just want to press the accelerator and they want to go into ludicrous mode all the time. <laughs> but like we kind of see now, it's 
you're printing money like crazy, debt crises like crazy. I mean, students don't get the check, right? So they just don't get any stimulus, which yeah. is kind of crazy considering the levels of debt we put these kids with and kind of bankrupted an entire generation to fund the boomers. And yeah. people yeah. just want to keep going. But, you know, you do need somebody and whether it's a magazine like yours or whether it's, you know, anonymous commentators on Twitter, you do need people to make you step back and think, what are we doing all this for? Like, where are we actually progressing to? And I think that's even more important than just pressing the go pedal. I do not believe uh, history has a direction. And even if it did, I am not convinced that it would be a positive one. Um, Nick Whitaker wrote a really interesting piece for us talking about accelerationism and, and sort of that historicism. One of uh, my qualms, though, and hopefully something we can be somewhat of an antidote to is you immediately defaulted to, to thinking about that in economic terms and the economic costs of different policies. And I think that is very much a modern and contemporary obsession. And that is also something I, I am somewhat wary of. Certainly economic health allows, it allows us to better lives in, in all sorts of ways we want. And it's much easier to, to reform things if you have the money to do it. But I, I think a great insight of looking towards the past is seeing communities for which money was either not a concern or, or was a subordinated one to other concerns. And so that, again, part of us being I think really humanities focused is in the realm of policy, money is absolutely always going to have to be a consideration, but there should be places where you can think unconstrained by economic factors. And I think we should try and imagine the world as best as possible, separate from any economic factors and try to figure out how to fund it secondly. I, yeah, I, I don't like that ordering. You know, what's so interesting is um, my boyfriend is from Denmark and he has a very like left-leaning view of governance and the world. And just yesterday, I mentioned the word future governance or governance futurism. And he goes, you know what? I think that in the future, we shouldn't have people governing other people, but just be governed by like an AI system that tells us, oh, okay, so there's a terrible homeless issue. So now we need to raise taxes. Do you, do you foresee, do you guys foresee that in the future that it would be an AI run society? Coming up with the term governance futurism was a, a great stroke by the guys at Palladium. <laughs> that, that's a wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing uh, phrase, right? Uh, and very indeterminate, which I also like. I am both very fearful of that, Jessica, conceptually, because it seems just so inhumane. Uh, and I, I can't imagine that would be a good way to structure society, except that I do think the example you gave was homelessness and taxes. I do think a lot of our economic questions might be better settled that way or, or really technocratic concerns prior to being political ones. I, I think an economics department would do a much better job of setting tax rates and trying to figure out um, to figure out how to structure that and not be too regressive or not uh, cause capital flight or anything of that sort. I don't think voters are well equipped to make those types of decisions. Outsourcing that to an AI might be great. Outsourcing political and social questions I, would be tragic. Yeah, it's almost like they want to take the humanities out of politics, right? 
these questions. You know, I, I actually think I'll be proved wrong eventually. I mean, I think Estonia is, you know, trying to do, they want to do this, right? So they have already done e-voting. A lot of the legislators, they are very pessimistic about human behavior. They take the view that, you know, like capitalism is a mistake, innovation is a mistake, the future's in the past. We have to go back and, you know, screw all this tech progress. And they definitely want to do this. They just want to get the humanities out as fast as possible. But it's almost like, is is that the answer? Or is it, you know, the answer of like, this is what we should do, which no one wants to talk about, right? Uh, that's actually what you wrote about, right, Bradley? Like in this way of like, how do we do the best for people? No one wants to talk about that. They just want to talk about economics. Yeah. Uh, and trying to rid human behavior from the system or innovation or any of the things you're saying is, is impossible. And so we have to figure out with ways to deal with it. And, and that that is great concern of mine. One of the more interesting at the moment intellectual circles, I think, is the Catholic right. And there is a lot of questioning as to how to order society towards man's good, primarily from the Catholic context, uh, how, how to make people holy or society just in line with what uh, the church teaches. I think those are the right questions to ask. I do not think that a catchphrase for some of this is, is Catholic integralism. I don't think anything of that sort is feasible in, in the United States. There, I don't imagine an integralist America. But it is important to try and ask those questions about how to have a just society, how to make people's lives good and happy and do it in a way that is not strictly partisan or not strictly religious. I, I think there are good answers out there, particularly if we look towards ancient philosophy. Yeah, and even that way, there's that talk among conservatives right now about do we necessarily need religion in order to have this viewpoint of like, how will we define the right or, you know, even all these religious libertarians, right? Do, do we necessarily have to intertwine religion and being a conservative? I, I don't I don't think so. I, I don't think they're intertwined at all. I do think, though, that sort of the religious instincts are present in in everyone. And I, I think if people will find ideologies or other things to fill uh, their theological impulses, if not religion proper. And, and I think we see that to a large extent. I, I do think the progressive left is a, a good example of turning political ideology into more uh, of a religious experience or, or theological drive with the, the way some consider it. Yeah, you know, I also see your interest in the people you read is, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Per, Perry? <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I couldn't, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So I've read a few of his works, but you know, it's interesting how, you know, this used to be a way bigger thing back in the day with the Christian Muslim dialogue, but now there's like no, none of it, right? I just don't ever hear it being spread. Uh, I, I don't think that that's true. I, I think there is a good bit of dialogue. I, I think most of it happens in very religious circles and so might not be seen, seen too broadly in society. I, I think a great example uh, in Berkeley, there's the Graduate Theological Union and, and the Islamic school there, uh, Zaytuna, has very, very good relations with, for example, the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. There's there's a lot of interreligious dialogue, and I do think particularly the, the Catholic Church, Islam, and, and Judaism are finding that they have a lot more in common with one another than they do with, with 
secular society and secular liberalism. So I, I do think there is, to an extent, a philosophic, political sort of coalition building among the Abrahamic faiths. I was just looking through the conscience of a conservative recently. And to your question, Ani, about do you need that religious element to be a conservative? I actually think that helped me to give a framework to how to look at all this. I got baptized 2017. I felt like Christianity gave me a framework to look at the world and it did adhere with like the conservative worldview in that the wholeness of a an individual's life has such an arc and every person has their own destiny. And I think that with the left, they don't necessarily see it that way. They put equality for the forefront and it's really about everybody being equal and not really recognizing that where you are today is not necessarily where, where you'll be tomorrow. And it's that mystery that is what makes life meaningful. So for me, I think there is something to the faith aspect. I think you're, you're right. Uh, and I don't want to alienate people who who are not religious i think it is possible to have beliefs or hopes of some sort of transcendental nature i i think an integral part of conservatism is a belief that there are things greater in life than just what the state can offer you and more than just political life. And for most people, I, I think that is not to be religion, isn't for everyone. But I, I think that distinction you're making, there is something to that. And I'll note that that book was indeed written uh, by a National Review writer who was uh, the the paper's conservative Catholic uh commentator for for many many years he also started triumph magazine no i'm talking about wait am i talking about the wrong book it's barry goldwater's book yeah 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 barry didn't write it uh brent basel oh. jr uh ghost wrote it for him i, I mean certainly oh. goldwater had had a hand in it and it, it very much represented his thoughts but basel uh i don't think i'm saying that quite right was the the primary author I was going to say my experience with Goldwater is actually very tangential where like, you know, a book I liked on it was, do you know Nixonland? So this guy, Rick Perelstein, talks about how it's the election of Nixon that kind of changes everything in America. There's an America before Nixon, there's an America after Nixon. And one, one way he shows that is, you know, after in 1968, the next eight out of the 13 presidential elections we've had have all been Republicans. And before that, you know, it was like mostly liberal. It's like post-war America. Um, everyone's a Democrat. They even go as far to say that, you know, this one guy, Daniel Bell, who is like this public intellectual, even says he did his own end of history book where he's writing about liberalism one. You know, the only problems we have right now are technical and administrative. Very clearly, that's not the case, right? It's just interesting that, you know, all of this stuff is happening right now with uh, Palladium, American Mind, Athwar, you know, not that conservative curious is anything yet, hmm. but you know, it seems like there's something happening. And to me, that's very exciting. So when I saw that you were launching this project, I was like, this is awesome. Only within the last month how did we start working on it. These ideas have been percolating uh, among us. And, and we have all been talking along these lines and writing for in other places, uh, talking about these things and we had a good group slack that we thought well maybe we should actually make something out of all of our discussions among among ourselves so uh so ed alia is myself and peter kranitz and the two of us try to isolate a concept 
or some sort of abstract thought and examine how different works of art and different thinkers and essayists, musicians and and others help shed light on the different ideas or talk about it in different works. So so we've tried to examine solitude in that way. Slackers, we had a great one just just about movies uh, on varying slackers. And we had a, I think, pretty good series uh, discussing the opportunity of political theory in the moment as we emerge out of quarantine and, and this crisis and talking about the various thought that's going on. But Ed Ali is very much a, a culture-driven and focused podcast. Uh, Phrenesis is William Lombardo and myself, and that is very much text-heavy. So each week we try and examine an essay, sometimes excerpt from a prominent thinker, and explain it, examine it, try to understand what's going on with it. And so we've discussed Leo Strauss's Why We Remain Jews, Walter Benjamin's theses on, on history, and Adrian Vermeule's Beyond Originalism essay in the Atlantic. Wow, those are all really good ones. You know, the reading the text as a for, as a form of podcasting, I think. We don't literally read the text. Oh, of course, of course, no, 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 no. No, what I, I just meant that in a philosophical way, of course. Yeah, like, yeah. I did economics, but a lot of my friends did philosophy, and part of the job for their dissertations was to go to these post-grad uh, seminars where people would, this is where it comes from, they would literally just read the text for like an hour, and then the next hour, they would just spend an hour discussing it. So you'd have to be there for both parts. And you're like, why am I even here? You know, it's it's like, I've already read the text, but I don't need to listen to somebody reading the text. Um, I guess it's just a group form but uh with this you know where you analyze the piece i think that just it's like just taking a chunk off of like one of the best parts of university and you know you don't need to be there and a professor to you know his thoughts on the road to serfdom it's like i can just hear your thoughts yeah we and we are very much inspired by by our favorite professors in in doing that you're you're right, right trying to get the best bits of lectures and and we're planning uh to have a couple really interesting exciting and engaging professors come on and talk about their favorite texts with us. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the approach. Hopefully others do, but it, it's certainly fun for us at, at a bare minimum. I was talking to Jess about this, you know, the 1517 fund uh, run by Michael Gibson and um, his team, they put out these amazing lectures with a bunch of people. And it's like actually getting like a full education. And it makes you just wonder, yeah. like, Zoom is good enough. But they do it in a way that's like, okay, we have all these people, you're basically selected, it's going to be an hour, so don't worry, like, you know, you can still go eat dinner with your friends. And we just go straight to the point. And you have to do a bunch of these readings beforehand. So you kind of know, like, people are in the same intellectual sphere as you. And yeah, you get through a lot in an hour, surprisingly, and it's way more productive than in university. Is it the 1517 at home? Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Like, I think recently, yesterday, they had a chess master discuss uh, how to play you know her views on chess and like the philosophies of chess and before that you know samuel Berger talking about why civilizations collapse um, yeah i really enjoyed his talk yeah that was a good one and burn hobart uh, discussing mimetic role and the role of mimesis and financial bubbles so there's been i think you're starting to get to this there's been a lot of talk about how to reinvent higher education and a lot of Silicon Valley seems to be interested in trying to find ways to streamline education, make it cheaper, how to determine people's qualifications for technical tasks. I don't come from a STEM background, but 
I, I've read a lot of compelling arguments for why the traditional university doesn't do a great job uh, of providing education for that. I do right. think what, what you were describing is also a way in which the universities as they stand now don't do a great job of educating in the humanities either. They're, I think the best way to learn it is to pick out wonderful essays or books written by great minds and go through step by step and discuss it with people and try to figure out what's going well, what's not. And that's much more valuable and interesting than a lecture, than a lecture of a certain sort. And I think much more insightful. When you think about redoing education, no one seems to talk about, you know, let's make it interesting for the students. So it goes back to that question you had of like, thinking from first things and what is the real goal we're trying to achieve. And if it's not like doing the best possible and making it as interesting and engaging so that these kids learn stuff, you're like completely off the beaten path. Classical thought is not dull in any regard. And Plato is far more exciting than any contemporary analytic philosopher. There, there's nothing yeah. like it. The, the books yeah. are novels. They are stories with so much going on. Uh, the, the dialogues are fascinating. I mean, have you gone and looked at any new contemporary philosophy? My boyfriend's really into this young German quote-unquote philosopher named Marcus Gabriel. I haven't really dug into the work, but he talks about the brain and consciousness and realism. And and sometimes I'm like, I don't think they're saying anything new. You know, I, sometimes I wonder if like with all that needed to be said has been said, like you're not inventing anything new. And so with these new books that come out, sometimes I feel really like disillusioned by it. Are you just like naturally skeptical of the new stuff? I, I think I am a little naturally skeptical of, of uh, newer things. Nothing is more tried and true than, than the Republic. Uh, everything else in philosophy is just a footnote to, to the Republic. Um, <laughs> a lot of stuff does feel redundant and repetitive. I don't think that is always true. And something we're trying to do with a thwart that I think a lot of people on the right have been uncomfortable with is trying to engage with the social and critical theorists in the aftermath of World War II. And Walter Benjamin, Theodore Adorno, Michel Foucault, they're are some really interesting insights from some of these thinkers, particularly in the Frankfurt School, that are worth engaging with and, and the way they recognize and understand cultural narratives in, in the modern world are, are fascinating. That There certainly is value to, to more recent, more contemporary work. And particularly, there, there are limits to how much people can understand technological advancement as we are going to see it, having not grown up in in the world that we have. Uh, Plato can give you a framework for that. Ar Aristotle can teach you the way you should break down a structure to understand that, but can't really understand th those concepts so well just from their work. So I, I do think there is value to contemporary work. And and I, I think the right needs to learn from critical theorists. There, there's valuable insights they have. Oh, did you say there is a pushback from the right on critical theory? Oh, absolutely. I the the right does not embrace uh the the critical theorists or or the insights of sociology or anthropology any of that sort of social theory of the last 50 60 years is very much anathema on the right and some of it for very good reason but the the there is work that needs to be treated seriously for right. for the right i think 
We discussed how America is currently obsessed with talking about how we're in a state of decline. To Bradley, predicting a state of decline is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Here's how he sees the way out. We thought starting a thwart was important. We fill a slightly different niche than American Mind, than Palladium. But the more people that are out there talking and thinking and discussing and trying to envision what the world could be, absolutely the better. The the more thought there is, I think the better our our chances of of not declining are. Uh, Again, we're really interested in the humane angle. Our our tagline is towards a new theory of culture and society and uh that that very much is is it uh i i'm curious on on reading as much as i can uh from contributors about things that influence or could change society ways that could be structured better and very much cultural works that that help influence it these cultural questions are are fundamental they they shape our worldview and that in turn shapes how, how we act politically uh, I wrote this piece actually with uh, one of David Pearl's writing fellows uh, just recently, and it was kind of about how you know the industrial revolution moved from this we've industrialized land, and you know we're eventually like Marx went on to say, you know we're actually just commodifying time. So UBI and these other yeah. approaches are kind of ways to draw that back because like quarantine has probably showed a lot of people they're just workaholics, right? It's like they might have a few drinks, they go back to work, they wake up, they work. Like there's no end, just as the capitalist dream, right? There's no end between work and life. Yeah, I I think that that's spot on. I feel like I've been working more since the quarantine. Weird. <laughs> I've been working from home. And for some reason during the quarantine, I'm like working more than ever. Oh, yeah. I was saying this. It kind of points out there's not much more to our lives. Work is the foremost focal point of our daily life. And when our options are constrained for leisure and recreation, we're going to turn to just working more to fill the extra time we have in quarantine, which is, I think, kind of sad as a society. That's where, where we're at. But alternatively, it's better than spending the rest of the night watching Netflix. Yeah, one one of um, the weirdest and most valuable experiences I had while, while living in Morocco was every day, the bulk of my day would be kind of sitting around doing nothing uh, in a cafe <laughs> chair, just staring at the street. And that that's what people do and watch people walking by. And it's really yeah. weird to, to live somewhere where nothingness is just waiting is a normal part of the day. And yeah. I get what you're saying, Jessica. I, I I didn't mean to slam it too much. You're right. There is value to our work, and particularly when you are doing interesting things like this. But there's something about just sitting and waiting, not right. doing anything, that that's incredible. I, I mean, I don't know if you would call a thwart part of the conservative movement. Like you didn't really say that it's conservatism. I think that you said that it's beyond the right and the left. But to me, I am a conservative, but the current aesthetic of conservatism is in the mainstream anyway, with this mega hat, God, country, this this kind of caricature of conservatives, it just does not appeal to me whatsoever. And so that was part of the reason why I wanted to start Conservative Curious, just with a clean slate and just seeing what dimension of conservatism I could add or explore. And I think part of the reason why I find a thwart so appealing is because it's nuanced and it's not what we've seen yet. I, I appreciate that uh, comment. That that's that's what we're going for. I 
I, I agree. And I think image is almost, if not as important as, as ideas and nuance matters. Frankly, I know uh, Athwart will never be National Review. Our goal isn't to sell hundreds of thousands of magazines. Well, I mean, we are not going to do print, but not to have a huge number of readers per se, but to try and hone in on an aesthetic. Buckley right. was great at, at giving National Review a mood. It, and, and so I, I want us to have a mood, a tone that is visible in our articles and in our work. And I want that to be what other writers, other policy analysts, speech writers, people working on startups, I want that mood, that tone in sort of the optimistic hope of of a humane world to be influential uh, for others and in other things. And so far, we, we've been successful in that based on who, who's been engaging with our work. But yeah, the, the nuance is important. It is not something that will ever make you immensely popular, but I, I would rather try to be truthful and publish good, beautiful, interesting work that, that hopefully can inspire others more so that, than popularity. What were Bradley's takeaways from how Morocco governs its society? And is there anything that we can learn from that? Here in the United States, we strip our, our political life from our economic life, from every other element. And Morocco has a united vision of mm. every element of society is one part of the whole, cannot be severed from the rest. And it all is directed by the king. That last part, you know, yeah. most people probably <laughs> would be mm -hmm. less than wild about. I, I thought the king was great, but the wholeness of their vision of, of what life should look like in a community, that is important. And if not embracing that model, uh, which would not yeah. work here, I think trying to be inspired and learn from it is certainly a good thing. Religion, faith, I do not think is irrational uh, as such, not, not as we understand it. Almost all of history's great scientists have been deeply religious. The, the Catholic Church sponsored a ton of technological and scientific advancement. Many of uh, the Arab world's greatest researchers, scientists, inventors were very, very, very pious Muslims. In the way that Leo Strauss talks about it, and sort of the tradition he's picking up on. I do think there are there is fundamental tension and conflict between reason and revelation insofar as how we understand the world and the two can't be reconciled. But certainly one isn't irrational or unreasonable to to be faithful. I, in that sense, one can be a great scientist and, and deeply pious. I'm just fascinated by your whole journey. Seriously, Bradley, like, like, how's your family? What do, what do they think? Do they, like, what happened to you in Morocco? Or like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on his head as a kid. Yeah. Um, I, I can't really answer that one <laughs> for you. you. You would have to ask them. They what? certainly think a lot of it is uh, unusual and strange. <laughs> no, my, my rebellious phase was uh, freshman year of college when I had Ronald Reagan posters all up in my dorm room and my parents came to visit. Oh, <laughs> very, very much that was my rebellion.
Well, I think that's why it's so important that all of these cool new explorations of conservative yeah. thought is coming to light, especially in the Bay Area. It is kind of a cool thing. It's like not yeah. mainstream. It's like underground. It's it's weird that conservatism has become punk rock in that way. Right. <laughs> Bradley, I mean, we I can't wait until the lockdown is over so that we can hang out and have a coffee or something. Absolutely. Likewise, I... I can't wait for the day that that comes. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Bradley. Great to hear more about you and getting to know you better. And this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship, guys. Hopefully. We love making new friends. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you like this episode. You can check out Bradley's magazine, Athwart, at athwart.org. That's A-T-H-W-A-R-T. Org. For exclusive content from Conservative Curious and to get on our guest list for private events, please subscribe at conservativecurious.com. Until next time, stay curious. This call is being recorded. I remember I looked at your personal website and I studied in England and, you know, I had a bunch of friends who did languages and all these other things. And I saw you put like your sort of interests and I send them and they were like, who is this guy? He just has the best <laughs> music taste. <laughs> good, I good. Approve. If there's anything I want to be known for, it's that. What are you